This is Teachings in the Air with Jerry Oldman. And today's podcast is about each day I wake up, I can change my mind. It's about change. And uh, when we decide to change, that's when the healing begins for us, when we go out to look for the, the healing. And the word heal, of course, means to become original, before we're hurt, or for instance, if I broke my arm, I'd go see the doctor, and the doctor would set my arm. So it would be like the way it was before it was broken. Well, the same for our mind. You know, when we get traumatized, uh, that means we get cut or wounded by an event or a person or people. Our mind you know, is open to being negative, being afraid, being depressed, being angry, you know. And, um, and I was thinking of this podcast, I was remembering as a child that when I was with my parents in, their, in our home, that I had no fear, no anger, no depression that was troubling, that was consistent, because it was a safe environment. Now, wonderful, wonderful parents that were committed to us as children, that we'd always have food, that we'd be warm, that we'd have what we need. And, uh, you know, that's where I grew up. And we worked together. Everyone worked together. You know, we had chores. We we couldn't sit around while other people are working or doing chores. We, they'd say, get involved, get your hands in there. And that's where I was growing up. And I could remember the good feelings, the joy that I felt in that home. Never fear, like I was saying, or never uh, toxic anger or shame or guilt. Uh, you know, it was good. It was good. And then all of a sudden I find myself in this environment where I don't know everyone. I don't know the teacher. It's in school. And I was starting to be taught, and I have little memory of that other than, you know, the trauma. It was arithmetic. And um, they were teaching addition. One plus one is two. 
And um, I remember, what I remember, what I recall from that is that there I was, you know, doing the arithmetic. And I remember we had these pencils that were red pencils that were thick compared to what we see in pencils today. And the erasers were square and they were like a caramel colored erasers. And the paper was yellow. And I, what I remember is a teacher brought my paper to me with my answers. And there was red X's all over my page. I had not gotten one right. And when put the paper in front of me, and I was looking at it, and all of a sudden there's slaps to each side of the head, bang, 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 bang. And this voice, and I remember I started weeping and my tears were falling on the paper in front of me. And she was saying, you erase that and you correct it now, you fix it. And I was crying. It's the first time in my life I was struck. But there I was with this eraser erasing the paper, but my tears were flowing so freely that my paper got wet and the paper started to rip and I got slapped some more. And I don't remember the rest of that class. I remember going home and telling my parents, I don't want to go to school anymore. So they kept me home for a couple of days. And what days? Talked me into going back to school. And school became an experience of fear and, you know, that I'm going to get beat up for making mistakes. And, uh, you know, it wasn't good. It wasn't a pleasant, good experience. It wasn't a, an adventure about learning. I could remember I'd sit in a class waiting for the teacher to come in in the morning, and the room would feel like it's spinning because I would be hiding, <laughs> trying to hide my desk even though I'm sitting right in plain view. My breathing was so shallow that my brain wasn't getting the right oxygen, and I started to I'd almost faint. That's my memory of school. It wasn't pleasant, it wasn't exciting, it was scary for me. You know, and um, the teachers seemed to be all like that, because I had three different teachers in, the in elementary school. You know, and, um, and I was afraid of all of them. You know, as a child, you know, you don't, I didn't um, think it was racism or anything. I was just afraid. I didn't think beyond that, being afraid, being um, you know scared of making mistakes. And I grew up being afraid to make mistakes. And uh, some uh, I hear it called perfectionism, you know, and it could be a mental health thing, perfectionism, that I was afraid to make a mistake. And if I cannot do it perfectly, I'm not going to do it. And as a result, I missed out on a lot of things in life because I wouldn't do it because I thought I'd make a mistake. So that is my first mental health issue was fear. You know, I was afraid. 
I was afraid of the teachers. I was afraid of making mistakes. Uh, it was, um, it wasn't good. You know, it's, I don't, no child should grow up like that. No child should experience that fear. You know, and I, when I think about it and, you know, that experience and how it affected me for a good many years of my life. You know, that message of a stupid Indian. Because as indigenous people, there was a, a created identity for us as Indians. You know, we were called Indians right across Canada. There was a Department of Indian Affairs in Ottawa that had a fiduciary responsibility for all of us Indians. You know, and that Indians became a, a trigger word for me because of the word stupid Indian. Then I would hear crazy Indian, drunken Indians, you know, the word Indian, there was a lot of negativity attached to that word when it come to my people. And as children, we absorbed that. I internalized it. You know, and, uh, and that's sad. And that happens for all children. They, I was told that we absorb everything like a sponge until we're six years of age. We don't compare and contrast. We just believe, you know, uh, what's being told to us or, you know, that, or what happens that we're beat up because uh, we make a mistake and that we're stupid, that I'm stupid, you know. So we have to be careful and sincere with our words. Uh, elders would say that to me when I became a, a man. You be careful and sincere with your words and the <laughs> the way they were impressing it upon me, a small group of us that were going to start to work with residential school survivors. An elder got, brought us aside and told us, you guys be careful and sincere with your words. It's like a bullet leaving the end of a gun. I thought, what nowadays, and I think of that, I say, what a wonderful way of teaching us the importance of being careful with your words that words can destroy, but they also can heal, they can teach. So we have to be careful and sincere. Most of all, being sincere, don't lie, don't play with words, you know, be accurate, mean what you're saying, was the message. And I look back and I say, yes, that's right. We must be careful and sincere. The, the teachers I had, you know, in my education experience, were not careful and sincere. Maybe they were sincere in the sense of they thought that we're stupid. I don't know. But that was the beginning of a mental health issue for me. Remember that the word health means to be sound in mind, body, and spirit. Well, my mind, you know, was... Well, when I think of it now, it's strong. It's a, we're born with that mind. That our, our, our brain is a storage for memories. It helps us to be aware of colors, of um, 
scent, you know, um, our senses, taste, feel, you know, when we touch something, you know, that's what the brain does. It helps us navigate around the world. But it also, you know, is a place of emotions or feelings. Because when I was, after I left school, my memory was about that stupid Indian, that little child that made mistakes. And I had to find a healing for that. I had to start to look for healing. So that was in elementary school. The fear there was making mistakes. Because I could go home at the end of the day. You know, and I was thinking about this podcast, and I was thinking about living in two worlds. Going into the school, I'd be afraid, and I'm dizzy because I'm not breathing properly. And then I go home, and I just, I guess probably I'd relax. I'm in a safe place. And my child mind um, would forget about the school while I'm at home. It had to be. And I have little memory of it, but um, that's that's the way it must have been. Because my parents kept me going to school. I kept going to school. Even though I was afraid. My learning was, and my education journey was hampered because of that fear. And um, so I missed out a, lo- a lot of the... Um, the first teachings around arithmetic or English or any of the topics, reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, and, um, well, writing, you know, I got that. It's, it's um, in those days we would make the alphabet, you know, with the A over and over, small A, capital A, writing and printing. So that I could do because it's visual and I could do that. But the computing part I was having a hard time with because I, I first off, probably wasn't really listening because I'm afraid of making mistakes. So I didn't understand the arithmetic, you know, and... Um, so that that was me in elementary school. And, um, and at home, you know, there's good food. There's warmth, there's support, there's encouragement. Teaching us how to take care of chickens and other creatures we had, you know, <laughs> that, and how to work together, how to be together. You know, like, um, I remember one time my brother and I, my next-to-be-in-age down below me, because I had um, three brothers younger than me and two brothers older than me. So the one next to me, the younger one, not the youngest, but the younger one, him and I would get into, of course, as siblings do, you know, we get into disagreements. And one time I 
we were disagreeing. I picked up a short two by four and I swung it at him and swung at his head and he ducked and I missed him. And my dad was watching and he, Jerry, get over here. So I go over and he's got that I mean it voice and he says, get a chocolate stick. And uh, it's the Saskatoon branch. And we all knew as children what the chocolate stick meant, that we are going to get um, disciplined or punished. And um, so I went to get the chocolate stick, a brand, you know, like a Saskatoon branch, and brought it to him, and he started whipping my legs. And the branch is not big enough to leave bruises or cuts or anything. It's just like a little stings. And he's whipping my legs, and then he started talking to me, and he said, don't you ever. And I noticed, I heard his voice changed. And I looked at my dad, and he's switching my legs, and um, he had tears in his eyes. And he says, don't you ever try to hurt anyone like that again. Don't you ever. And because of the emotions in him, it bonded me to him. It, it was like it was a magical moment. Because I know today if he was swearing at me and hollering at me in an angry way, and I would have probably, you know, been angry with my father. But because he was teaching me in a way and it was hurting him too, it bonded me to my father. And one of my aunties later on in life told me when we disciplined our children, we never used an open hand or a fist or kicked a child. We always used a switch because it's not personal that way. And I'd think about the teachers slapping me around the ears and the cheeks, and my head. It was personal. After on, I started to, you know, not like them, start to hate them. You know, these teachers. It was personal. But with my dad, it wasn't personal. It was a teaching, it was a lesson. <clears throat> so, that was, uh, you know, at, at home, when I entered the world of home, and, you know, they would teach us. <laughs> I was thinking about that, being careful with your words. Um, I grew up in life of being afraid of salamanders. Uh, I called them lizards, you know, and they're, you know, like the kind you see on TV and tell us and things like that, or Geico, those little creatures. And there are people I think they're cute. And for me, you know, I would, um, I was helping, you know, that we get together as a community and we clean the graveyard, you know, and once every year, and, and we'd help around the church that was in our community, you know, and um, and we we're building a rock wall by the church, so we'd get rocks and bring them up, and the elders were making the wall. And we're building the wall, and you know, 
And there was one of those creatures, a little salamander. I never knew we had them around my hometown, my community, but there it was. And uh, I said, look, and I was excited because it was the first time I see one. And one of the elders there said, oh, be careful. That's a Ufuch snake. And I said, oh. And he says, why be careful around that? And he says, well, it's a Ufuch snake. It'll crawl up your pants and go through it to eat your insides out. And I said, oh, I was scared of that little creature. And it, it let you know how long it lasted. I was in um, Europe with my wife, and we were... Um, touring in Italy and um, we went to this little island and we're looking at lace factories, glass factories and knife maker and different things and just, you know, looking around. And we had to get there by boat and, um, you know, like a water taxi and then we're finished looking around and we're going to go back to where we were staying and we're waiting for the water taxi, and we're on this embankment, like a, you know, something to keep the water in control. And, and uh, so I was sitting on there, and, and there was one of those little creatures. And my wife says, Oh, look. And she didn't know I was scared of them. And I looked, and there it was right beside my hand, and she. And I jumped, and she said, it was just like you were ejected. You just shot straight in the air, and they were scared. And she was laughing. <laughs> and I told her. Well, I was told when I was a child, that's a upuch snake. And what if it could eat my insides out? So that stayed with me, and I was already in my 50s and my 60s. And probably today, even if I seen one of them, I'd have a fright. So that's an example of being careful and sincere with your words. They were teasing. That elder was teasing. And it didn't really cause me harm, you know, but I'm afraid of those little creatures. There's nothing compared to being called a stupid Indian or hearing the word, those are drunken Indians. You know, that left me pain and suffering. You know, the lizards, the little creatures, you know, at least would <laughs> have my family and relatives and my wife laugh when I get scared of them. You know, but uh, the other ones are the harmful. I didn't have to get healing because of the little lizards, the little upuch snakes. But I had to look for healing for my mind because of the terms stupid Indian, lazy Indian, crazy Indian, drunken Indian, you know, I had to find teaching, healing for that. So that was, you know, in my elementary school experience. Then I went to residential school. And that's where the mental health what we call mental health today, you know, and one of the reasons I want to do these podcasts was to let people know that we need help. If we're angry all the time or depressed or afraid, you know, what they call anxiety, you know, and or ashamed or feeling guilt, you know, and we don't feel joy in our life. 
real joy because we're so focused on being angry or depressed or, you know, it's not 24-7. I wasn't like that 24-7, I know it, that I had laughter and I had other experiences too, but this was always there. It's like the, what they call in the closet, this, these memories of abuse. You know, there I would be, you know, everything's okay, and all of a sudden something would remind me of being a stupid Indian or a drunken Indian or being abused. And it's like a spiral into feeling bad, feeling depressed, feeling alone. You know, that's not a good way to live. So those memories were in my mind. And how do you deal with a memory like that? Is a question. And what I'm going to tell you is how I dealt with it. So people know we can deal with these things. Because I felt that I'd never ever get over those things, you know. I didn't feel like that, that I was living like that. Wasn't looking for answers, wasn't looking for a way to stop it. I didn't like it. I, it, was, it wasn't a good life, like I was saying. It wasn't a good way. So I, um, you know, in the residential school, like I wasn't going home at the end of the day. I'm living there, you know, 10 months a year, and it's, that's where I believe, you know, I lost a resilience, because resilience means you recover after trauma, or you can recover quickly. So I'd recover going from the Indian day school to home, I would recover. And I would be myself again, being with my parents, because it's safe there. At the residential school, I'm going back to the dormitory, you know, back to the rec room, you know, in the residential school. And my parents aren't there. We're just all of us um, young people there. Probably all feeling the same in some ways. You know, so there's no respite from, you know, the feelings that I was experiencing at the residential school. You know, it was, I, I believe today that that's what really caused the damage for Jerry. Because when I left at 18 years of age, you know, I, it was like, it was a habit now to be depressed, to be angry, to be afraid of making mistakes not having real self-confidence, no desire to go to post-secondary school. You know, I didn't want to go to school anymore. And I went home, my dad asked me after I graduated, oh, son, you gonna go to college now? And I says, no, dad, I don't want to go to school anymore. And he says, well, then you go find a job. He says, you're not gonna stay here and do nothing. So I end up going to work in the logging camp, you know, and started to become part of the labor force, being a laborer. And there, that's when I started to encounter racism. That's when I'd hear stupid Indian again, crazy Indians. You know, and I, again, I living in fear at times. I remember in that logging camp, I was in the quit. 
I was going to leave because I was afraid because he's this, it's just like this guy had a gang of people that turned against them all against me. You know, and, uh, they were they were cruel and they were mean spirited men. And being only indigenous there, I felt under threat. And I was going to leave. And um, I remember that one time I said, well, to my mind, I said, I'm going to quit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. And I, meanwhile, at that time, in that camp, you know, there was this man. His name was Vern. He was six foot eight. And he was a Vietnam vet. And him and I got into argument about racism. And I said, you're a racist. And today I learned if you want to insult a European-based human being, their ancestries from Europe, just call them a racist and they get hurt feelings. You know, that's what happened with Vern. I called him tiny because he was six foot eight. And he was chasing me around in the woods there where we're working, and he couldn't catch up to me because was, I was running on top of the branches because the logs were laying all around us, and this, we were logging. And he kept trying to catch me. He couldn't catch me. And finally he stopped, and he said, Jerry. And I looked at him. Something happened with him. He said, you're right. I says, oh, okay, you know. We became friends. And... Um, Shortly after that, he was watching, and he'd see these guys in the ringleaders. Ringleaders' name was Jim, and he followed this man into the shower room because we're all living like in dormitories in this logging camp. There were trailers actually hooked trailer to trailer, and he followed him into the shower room. And Hey, Jim, he says, and he picked him up, bunched his shirt in front of him below his neck and lifted him up, and he had his head on the ceiling. And he says, I don't want to hear anything about Jerry anymore. He got it, and he was shaking him. I didn't see it, but a friend, another friend of mine said, hey, did you hear what Tiny done? I says, no, and he told me that's what he'd done. And he said that to this man a couple of times, nothing. I don't want to hear nothing about Jerry anymore. And he dropped him on the floor. And it stopped. Those guys stopped. They were afraid of the six foot eight Vietnam vet. And uh, so I stayed. But I'm always with Vern after with Tiny, you know, <laughs> just like connected to the hip. We'd go together everywhere together and work together. And we got such good friends, and we're going to go to Hawaii because the, the logging camp would shut down when it snows because the snow gets deep in Sitka, Alaska. Wouldn't be able to find the logs. And we had an agreement we'd go to Hawaii because he had some relatives there, and we could stay there and draw unemployment in Hawaii. Okay, we'll do that, Tiny, I said. And... um so we're logging, one day I was running across these logs or across this, I guess in a way it's a canyon on the side of the mountain. And I tripped over this branch sticking out in this log. 
and I was falling down towards uh, the falling down head first because the head's the heaviest part of our head. And I hit these branches on the way down and it flipped me over. And I landed my feet and the doctor said my feet must have been crossed and I landed because I broke, uh, it chipped off the, he says you chipped off the, the edge of your fifth lumbar because they had to pack me out of the bush and uh, stretcher because my nerves were pinched and stuff and I was hurting and I couldn't stand up and it was hurting. And they took me to the hospital in Sitka. And they x-rayed me, found out what was wrong and immobilized me and told me that, yeah, you probably, you have to be really careful how you work and do things now because um, your back will go out easy. So, I was in the hospital and the logging camp had shut down and started snowing. And Vern comes in and said, hey, Jerry, you still want to go to Hawaii? And I said, I don't know when I'm going to get out of here, Vern. You might as well leave. No, I'll wait. No, 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 Vern, you can go. And he left. And he eventually let me out of the hospital and I went home. And You know, it was a depressing time for me because uh, my back would go out easy and I turn wrong, lift up wrong and my back would go out. And so I had to look for healing for that. But my mind, you know, I guess that experience with Vern in some ways got to know there are good people out there that would help me. You know, I, over my lifetime, you know, when I was logging camp, of course I was drinking and I became addicted even heavier there. Because I, you know, I went to logging camp right after residential school and uh, started drinking. Always in the back of my mind was my experience in the school system, day school and residential school. And I think about it today, that caused all my mental health problems. We call mental health my depression, my anger, my anxiety, my guilt and shame feelings, you know. And I, you know, I just, but I want to let you know that it wasn't 24-7 in Jerry's life. I still enjoyed things. I still enjoyed playing sports. I enjoyed watching sports. I had good laughs. I enjoyed food. But there's always this with me. This, I guess it's a secret. And I, um, but eventually... That catches up to you. You can only carry it so long. I learned later on in life, the trauma victims can only carry, hide the trauma in their body for so long and you're going to explode or implode. And I was carrying that and um, it's like something hidden way deep in me and I don't even know what it was anymore, but I know I'm not feeling right. I had suicide ideation. I had suicide thoughts in my head. I don't want to live. You know, my life's hateful to me. I don't want to be here. Look at the thoughts in my head. 
wishing someone would save me, wishing someone would come and save me, or someone would say, hey, let's quit drinking together, Jerry, and wishing for that, and it's not happening. It stopped. It didn't stop, but I remember I went to an elder in my community and became our social worker. And I went to him, and I said, Toma, I said, you know, I'd seen him. I went to see him. It was a beautiful, sunny day in my community. Blue skies, white clouds, you know, mountains and glaciers. And I told him, Toma, I know it's beautiful outside. It's a beautiful, sunny day, but I can't feel it. He looks at me. He said, oh, my, you better get help, he says. Didn't even say mental health or anything, but that's what it was. He says, you need help. So I started then. I wasn't looking for it, but it came, and I was lucky because the big help for me at that time was, um, well, just to maintain myself, you know, like I was telling you, it wasn't 24-7. I had quit drinking by this time in my life, and... Um, but I was still depressed, angry, and afraid, and feel guilty and shameful for different reasons, you know, about being a parent or a family member or being indigenous. But there was this um, workshop, and people would talk about it. This guy had a name, and he was doing this. These sessions called Indian Is, and it was about identity and about positive thinking. So I went, and... Um, Oh my gosh, it, it opened the door to the healing for my mind. You know, because he's talking about affirmations and saying things over and over and over again. An affirmation to stop negative thinking. And he'd give us examples. He'd tell us stories about change about changing your mind, about being persistent and consistent by saying things over and over again. You know, and he would talk about examples about people and how they overcome fear and how they, they could change. He gave an example, and he was saying, he was a wonderful speaker, storyteller. And he says, if I put a big 20-foot plank here, a two-by-eight, you know, two inches thick and eight inches wide, and put it between, put it up in the air in these chairs, and said, if I put a $100 bill at the end of it, would any of you volunteer to walk on that plank to get that $100 bill? And, oh, hands shot up. Oh, yeah, I will, I will. He says, yeah, I would too. He says, I'd even dance and hop on one foot to go across to get that $100 bill. But it would change if I put that plank 50 feet in the air. He says, then how many of you would volunteer to hop across that board to get that money? He says, the plank is still the same. It's sturdy enough to hold us, but the height, now we start to get afraid. He says, that shows you the power of the mind. So he gave us these examples. 
Then he give us examples of the power of the mind and change by saying an affirmation over and over and over again. He says, garbage in, garbage out. And the way we get the garbage out, sometimes we have to say it over and over and over again. I'm a good, powerful, indigenous man. That is one of the examples he has given. And for the woman, I'm a good indigenous woman, powerful. You know, so he's teaching us how to reverse that stupid Indian, crazy Indian message that we'd been hearing as children and as people. And people will still say things like that, that we're drunken Indians. You know, so I, uh, holy cow, that was transformational, that workshop. He told this one story, and um, I don't know if it's a story, but it's a good story, you know. It's a, one of his examples. He's talking about a, a prince, and a, probably in India or somewhere, you know, that was born and the baby, and it was a troublesome birth, and he was born and he, has, he was deformed. So he grew up and uh, he struggled in life, you know, because of his deformity. And he said he became a young teenager and his dad asked him, what do you want for your birthday? I'll get you anything you want. And the son said, I want you to hire the best carver in, in the realm to carve a marble statue of me with a perfect body with my face on it. His dad said, no, I can't do that. I won't do that. Because he thought it would make his son more ashamed of himself. And his son was adamant and said, no, that's what I want, Dad. So his dad gave in and hired a carver, master carver, to make the statue. And uh, our teacher said, carried on with the story and said, they would see that young man and the father, the statue was delivered and the father says, where do you want us to put it? Right outside my window of my bedroom, he says. So that's where the dad put the statue. And the story goes that the young man would be there looking out the window, you know, in the morning, in the evening for an hour at a time and he'd be standing there and he'd be sweating. And he's trying to straighten up his body to resemble that statue. So he kept doing that day after day after day. And it started to work. He's starting to change the shape of his body that his muscles had formed. Because I guess it, was, it wasn't it was like a permanent defect, it was a birthing problem that caused him to be crooked. But just by the power of his mind and his determination, and he had an example, and he was looking at it every day, that's what he wanted to be. And that was the story. And I don't know if it's true, but it's an inspirational story for me helped me to change my mind. It was a good story. He had stories like that, this facilitator. They were inspirational about doing things over and over and over again and not giving up. 
because that's what I was doing. I was giving up. And now I had something to do. One of my affirmations were, and I'd say day in, day out, I'm a lovable, capable human being. Because before that, I'm talking to myself, oh, I'm a stupid Indian. No, oh, I'm crazy. I'm drunken. Because I started to drink, I became what those words were. And that is part of his message. That's why he says, garbage in, garbage out. Get that garbage out of your head. Those messages that are not true. And today I know they're not true. So that's what I started to do using affirmations. And that, you know, it brings you so far. And, um, in my life, you know, I still, you know, I guess I don't know wanting to use the word total heal, but I still had work to do, you know, because I still had hate in me, you know, for people that hurt me and when I was a child. These are individuals, not society, because society in a way hurt us too, and the government's laws and policies about getting the Indian out of the, out of the child and, you know, putting us in a reservation and allowing racism to run wild in the country. You know, all of those things, that's society stuff, you know, that's government stuff. You know, nobody would seem to be stopping it. Today I feel there are people that want to stop it in the Canadian society. Governments will say, yeah, we'll do UNDRIP, we'll do all of those things, you know, but and to me, it's like they're saying that with their tongue in their cheek. You know how it is when people go nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah, we'll, we'll sign on to UNDRIP. But they don't implement it. <laughs> That's been my observation. That's just Jerry's observation. You know, I want you to understand that. You know, with my hate, because hate's a, um, that's a powerful word, hate, to hate somebody. I hated my abusers. I'd have nightmares that showed that I was suffering from trauma because I'd have these same nightmares all until I went through healing, you know, and that was many years of my life. I'd have these nightmares. Finally, one elder says to me, Jerry, you know, you're really good that you're in the healing path. You're doing ceremony. You, you go bathe in the morning, you run, you're doing all of these things. And they were maintaining my life for sure. They were doing good, tremendous good for me. But I had this one thing left that I needed to work on. It was the hate. I hated the British people because they're the colonizer. When I heard that they planted smallpox blankets on the west coast and it reached all the way up into Lullwood and killed they say up to 85% of the Statlium people. And I was going, oh, my gosh. I said, my, because I wondered why my ancestors didn't fight these people, stop them from taking over our territory. And then when I'd learned that many people died of smallpox in that pandemic, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, they were weakened. They couldn't resist. Because I'd found out too, that um, I think it's 1854, there were 10,000 gold miners in the town of Lullwood, my hometown. 
and my people, meanwhile, were decimated by smallpox. So they couldn't stop them. There's too many of them. So I forgave my people for not, I told people not having tough immigration laws and um, make sure they do good profiles on these people coming in, you know, so I forgave them for that because I said they couldn't, they were, and you know, when you got 10,000 people in one town, they're going to eat a deer meat and a fish that we live on. So my people were weakened, couldn't resist, outnumbered. So I understood that. But I still hated the English were planting those smallpox blankets, creating the reservations and residential schools. Because that's who I believe done it. And those were called, the uh, people today call them the colonizers, taking over the country taking over the economy, taking over, uh, eradicating our traditional governments and putting the Indian Act on us, how to live in our small reserves, you know, that I've heard different numbers, but I go by the number 0.05% of the land mass in Canada as Indian reserve, lands reserved for Indians. It's small, that's small. That's allows the privilege of the Canadians and helped us to be poor people. So I was carrying this hate for the British people and for Christians. Though so there's different different um, events in my life that got me to forgive because some of my some of the healers are saying, you know, you have to forgive, Jerry. In your healing path, you need to forgive. I say, no, why should I forgive? I don't want, they, they hurt me. Why should I forgive them for hurting me? Because I thought forgive means that's what it meant. It's okay that you hurt me. I'm not, I'm not going to get back at you. It's okay. I was thinking, like, I guess Christian ways, maybe, you know, when they say turn the other cheek when somebody hurts you. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I looked up the word in the dictionary, and it said to, to let go. It's a verb. It's an action. And like a light bulb went off in my head. I said, yeah, hey, I'll do that. And I felt good almost immediately. I started to feel better. But I still needed to work at it. But it was there. It was, oh, my gosh, I can change. I can change my mind again. So I, uh, I said, okay, I'm going to do that. What that started, you know, what started that, that I can forgive, was um, I went to this conference at UBC called Crimes Against Humanity, and I was going to, I presented on re sexual abuse at the residential school and the impacts on indigenous health by the sexual abuse. So I done my presentation. They said, you can stay and listen to the other presenters. So I, I stayed. And I heard these presenters talk about sex slaves, about genocide, about the Holocaust, and all these crimes against humanity in the world. And I'm, by the end of the last day, I'm thinking, I have to hear something. 
to, so I can have faith in humanity again because I'm losing faith. There's so much crimes against humanity. And uh, the one that started me on the path of changing my mind in regards to hate went to the podium. He's the last speaker. He was an elder Chinese man. He had two canes, and he's hobbling up to the podium with his interpreter. Told us his name and the village he came from in China, and he pointed his legs, and he says, I got the rotten leg disease. It'll never get better, and they say it'll only get worse as each day goes by. And he says, my village was anthraxed by the evil Japanese in the world in the in the war. When I heard him say evil Japanese, my world started to change. Because right away I said the evil white men hurt me and the evil Christians hurt me. He changed me, and that opened the door for me doing more healing work in regards to my hate and my mind. So I, you know, with the British, my wife's sister went to England, you know, and uh, my wife would go visit her, went to go visit her, and she said, you want to come to England? I said, no, 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 you go. I'll just stay home. You go and see your sister. So she would go. Happened, I think, for a couple of years, and then one one day she says to me, ah, my sister's getting married. She fell in love with an Englishman. And I said, oh, my gosh, I have to go to England. Because that's family. And I tell people, you have to support family, so I have to live up to my words. So I said, okay, I'll go. I rented a suit and, <laughs> you know. So it's a year later that we're going to go to England. and I'm, So I'm thinking, you know how we are. We, we mull things. I mull things over and I think about things. And I'm thinking, I'm going to England. And I hate those British people. I better walk my talk. And um, the elder had been telling me to forgive my abusers and my people that make me feel negative. And I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive the British people and the Queen of England for colonizing us and for what happened with the evil ones. So I, I told my wife, yeah, I'm going to, um, I'll do a ceremony. And I said, she said, where in England? I said, I, I was thinking of Speaker's Corner. I'll go there and I'll bring a rattle and I'll sing and I'll do a ceremony to, to forgive the Queen and the British people. She says, oh, so we're in England and London and we went down to Speaker's Corner there and there was people there and somebody talking about aliens, another one talking about the Quran and Muslims and stuff and all kinds of speakers at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. And I was down there, and I said, no, it doesn't feel right here to my wife. She says, why don't you do it over by Buckingham Palace? Hey, that sounds good. So we're going to went over there in the morning, put on my headband, took out my rattle, and she's filming it in the iPad. 
and I'm talking to the queen. I said, uh, introduced myself. I'm telling him my names, Jerry Oldman. I come here to forgive you, Queen of England, for your ancestors colonizing us. I want to let go of that hate I have for the colonizer so I can live in a good way and without being angry all the time, without being depressed. And I said, I want to forgive the people of England today for the way I was thinking of them, thinking they're all evil, and I've learned that all people aren't evil. So I want to forgive, I want to let that go, those feelings towards the English people. And I said, uh, you know, and I want to thank the English people. Because I understand, understand that this River Thames here was so polluted that no life can live in there. It killed the river, Thames, dumping raw sewage in there, and, you know, pollutants. Then you changed the law and you showed the world you can change, you can, and you, and you made a law about modified foods and about being healthy foods, you know, and stopping pollution. You showed the world that it can be done. I want to thank you for that. So I forgave them, and then I finished by singing a song and dancing in front of this big statue of the queen. You know, and uh, this gold on top, I could see it, and I'm dancing there. Forgave them. And that was, uh, really helped my mind. And I noticed a difference after, and I talk, and I go around London town, all of a sudden, English people were talking to me. Oh, I'm glad you come. I'm, where are you from? Canada. Oh, I'm glad you come over. Because before that, I guess people could feel my resentment and my hate and would stay away from me. So I, uh, I benefit from that. Because now I start learning about these English people started talking to me. You know, and I learned more. So that's uh, my forgiveness story and my healing journey for my mind. So I wanted to let let you know out there in uh, podcast land that we can change our mind. I was told that by an elder. Every day we wake up, we can change our mind. And I changed my mind many times about drinking, about swearing, about the food I eat, and about hate. And it's done nothing but good for me, so I wanted to share that with you. So that's what this podcast was about. And I'm going to do more about my healing journey in my, regards to my mind, my body, and my spirit. So I want to thank you for listening. And, um, and you remember, each day you wake up, you can change your mind. And that our suffering is not 24-7. And I imagine, I guess in my mind, maybe there are some that is. And those ones are really bad way. And I guess maybe those are ones that are homeless and totally addicted. But we need to support them, send energy to them, encourage people to find healing, to let them know that healing is a reality and it can happen. 
So that's the message I wanted to give on this podcast. Thank you for listening and share it with people. You never know it might help someone. Thank you.